Good evening, church family. There you go. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, with the rain and the thunder, I kind of feel like I need to be reading from the King James to really instill the fear of God in us, but I've only got the ESV. Um, this evening, I'm going out of my comfort zone in the sense that we're looking at a large portion of Scripture, two chapters in the Gospel, which is uh, not what we usually do. We like to spend our time on these particular narratives, but uh, as I hope to show, these two chapters really do fit together, and given the fact that we want to give a bird's eye view of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we can uh, justly look at them together. You'll see chapter one, chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 6 really record for us uh, five confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then chapter 3, verse 7 records for us the different responses to Jesus. Uh, although we could preach any one of these texts as a standalone sermon, uh, I do trust that we'll see Mark's larger point. Uh, that, and that point is really this, that Jesus, as the authoritative Son of God, is worthy of praise, worthy of following. And so if you have your Bible, please do read with me Mark chapter 1 from verse 1, Mark chapter 2 verse 1, sorry, all the way to the end of chapter 3. This is God's Word. Let's hear it. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days, are come, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old white skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the midst in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son, so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and the man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. But Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from behind the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard that he was doing, heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseased, diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them to, make him know, to not make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called him, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon to him he gave the name Peter. James, the son, the son of Zebedee, and John his, and the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Beonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard 
they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called, to the, called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, of man, and whatever blasphemies they, blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they are saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my, my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Only so far in the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Uh, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, as we see the testimonies of your Son, we pray that the gospel would go out clearly this evening. We pray that we would hear it not as the word of man, but the word of God, that by the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit, you would draw your people to yourself, that we would receive your word. Whether unbeliever or believer, we pray that all of us would turn to you and believe upon you and wait for your son and believe upon him. We pray that you'd help us to turn daily from the idols of this world and to turn to your living son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. I hope you guys can hear me properly. I can't hear myself. But anyway, I'm sure you would agree that conflict often makes for a compelling story. I'm sure you would agree that a compelling story is often one that's marked with conflict. Uh, if you think about the Lord of the Rings, what kind of story would that be if there was no conflict to solve, no tension to settle, no challenge to overcome? Uh, remove conflict from the Lord of the Rings and it becomes a glorified version of Teletubbies. Now, some of you don't know how to get it, but how does the Lord of the Rings start? It starts with little people in grass, grass houses that's around. Some of you know what that means. But the point is, without conflict, uh, a story loses its, its drama, its suspense. A compelling story is often marked with conflict. See, it's conflict that not only propels a story forward, but it's in the conflict that we see the characters emerge that creates suspense and drama. It's in the conflict that the villain reveals itself. And it's in the conflict that the hero must stand up and take a stand. Now, why mention all of this? Well, Mark, I would argue, is telling us a compelling story. 
a story filled with conflict. Conflict wherein we see the villains arising. Conflict in which we see the villain of the hero taking a stand. Conflict that seeks some kind of resolution where you're either with the hero or you're for the villain. And who is this hero in this story? Well, you've guessed it. It's, it's Jesus. In Mark, in this section, Mark is with rapid succession drawing our attention to five confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's through these confrontations that he wants us to see Christ and the glory of his person. In fact, at the heart of these confrontations are, are five questions. Uh, five questions that, uh, that uh, point us to who Christ is. Uh, so you'll see the first in chapter 2, verse 7, where the, the Pharisees ask, why does this man speak like that? Uh, the second question, chapter 2, verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, the third question, chapter 2, verse 18, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast but not yours? And the fourth question, chapter 2, verse 24, why are they doing what's not lawful? And then the last question, Jesus turns the tables. He asks the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? Now, now why is Mark telling these questions? Why is he presenting them to us? Why is he tying these conflicts together? Well, to show us our hero. To show us in the context of his enemies, of those who seek his life, he wants us to see Jesus. To see Jesus as the Son of God who is worthy of our worship and our devotion. That's what you really see come out in chapter 3 verse 11. In, in comparison to the Pharisees who oppose Jesus, who, who fail to see who Jesus is, Mark tells us that the unclean spirits see and they confess him as the Son of God. Whereas those guys don't see the, the Messiah, these unclean spirits see, see him. And, and that's what Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. Now as we consider these five confrontations, I want us to see five things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Five things to see about Him. The first thing is I want you to see the God who forgives. The God who forgives. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, we find this well-known incident of these four friends who carry this paralytic to Jesus. And they go to Him for healing. But at the heart of this conflict is Jesus' statement in verse 5. Look where He says, verse 5, And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. And quite understandably, the scribes respond in verse 6. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I realize the scribes are right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God has the authority to forgive our sins. And that's the exact point that we should see. Jesus has the authority of God. Uh, this comes out even more clearly when Jesus asked them a question in verse 9. He asked them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
And I realized on the one hand, it feels like I can actually talk now. Uh, and I realized on the one hand, uh, both of these uh, options are equally difficult. Only God has the ability and the authority to heal and forgive. That's what Psalm 103 verse 3 says. God is the one who forgives. God is the one who heals. It realized on the other hand, at that point, in that context, with everyone watching, the harder option is to say, take your bed up and walk. Why? Because it's immediately verifiable. You can immediately test Jesus at this point. And so although both are difficult, saying your sins are forgiven is easier than saying, stand up and walk. Now, now here's the beauty of what Jesus does here. He starts by saying the, the thing that's easier. Your sins are forgiven, and then he proves it by doing the more difficult thing, by healing the paralytic. And the point is this. If Jesus has authority to heal the physical, then Jesus has the authority to heal the spiritual. He has the authority to actually forgive our sins. He's no blasphemer. No, he's the son of God who's been given authority to forgive. But there's another implication of what Jesus does here. By, by combining both the physical and the spiritual, as it were, by combining both this healing and this claim to forgive sins, Jesus is saying that the fundamental problem we have is in healing, the healing of our flesh. No, the fundamental problem we have is the healing of our sin. Dear friends, let's never forget our greatest need is the need for forgiveness. We have sinned against a holy God, a God who is just, a God who is wrathful, who is burning against sin. He is holy, and so our greatest need is forgiveness, and behold, here is a God who forgives. And until you see your need for forgiveness, until you see that this healing that you need is the healing of your soul from your sin, until you see that, you won't truly rightly estimate who Christ is. You won't see him as your greatest need. So you won't grasp the goodness of Jesus until you've grasped the bad news of, our, of your own sin. And so the, the good thing we see, the good news we see, that there is a God who forgives in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the second thing I want you to see from this text is not just the God who forgives, but the physician who shows grace. The physician who shows grace. If Jesus, if God, if Jesus is the God who forgives sin, if Jesus is the God who brings spiritual healing, then the question becomes, who does he save? Does he save the righteous? Does he save those who have it all together? Does he save those who are spiritually healthy and who have earned it? The answer is no. He's a physician who shows grace to the unlikely, to the unworthy, and to the unrighteous. That's the point of chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Jesus goes to the tax collectors, to sinners. He, he goes to those who are despised and outcasts. He goes to those whose sins seem to place them beyond reach, beyond God's care. And here's the wonder of Jesus again. Whereas the Pharisees reject sinners, Jesus reaches out to them. In fact, he, he sits with them. He eats with them. He relates to them. 
We saw that in his baptism, he identifies with sinners, with people like you and me. Why? Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus identifies with us because we need a physician. Notice two things of what Jesus says there. First, Jesus recognizes that sinners are sick. Jesus doesn't just welcome and accept sinners for who they are. That's the idea we have in this world. Jesus accepts you for who you are, even your sin. No, Jesus does welcome you, yes. But he welcomes you as a physician who wants to heal you. Who wants to remove that sickness from your body, from your soul. No, he isn't some physician who is unconcerned about your state. No, his heart beats with compassion for the sick, for those whose souls are in need. He recognizes sinners as sick. But, but secondly, you note, know, sinners need to recognize their own sickness. Jesus doesn't just call the righteous, that is, the, the self-righteous, who, who think that they're perfect in and of themselves, that they're without sin. No, he calls those who own their sin. He calls those who, who know that they've fallen short. See, so just as sickness and ailment in your body compels you to go to your doctor, so are sin or to compel us to go for, to Christ for healing. And, and behold the grace of Jesus here. If you own your sin, if you go to Jesus with it, no matter how big it is, how vile it is, how ugly it is, if you go to him with your sin, he receives you. He welcomes you. He's a physician who cares for you, who pursues your health. And in order to go to this physician, you don't need to be on the right medical aid scheme. You don't need to make a huge down payment up front. No, all you need to do is go to him with your sin. You will, and he will show you grace upon grace. Uh, I love this quote by J.C. Ryle. No sin-sick soul is too far gone for him. To feel our sins and know our sickness is the beginning of Christianity. To, to be sensible of our corruption and abhor our own transgression is the first symptom of spiritual health. Happy indeed are they who have found out about their soul's disease. I'll be honest, I don't understand Christians who complain that we preach too much about sin. Uh, they'll say something like this, just show more grace. Dear friends, if you want to understand grace, understand how sick you are of sin. Understand the vileness of your sin, and in the backdrop of your sin, the grace of God shines beautifully. Uh, the the thing that should cause us joy is the fact that, that we serve a physician who shows grace. Despite the sickness, despite the leprosy of our own sin, he welcomes us to cleanse us. There is grace for a sinner like you and me. There is, a, there is healing available for our sin-sick souls. This leads me to the third thing I want you to see, the, the next conflict. We see that Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy. Jesus is the bridegroom who brings joy. 
Now, now to understand the question about fasting in chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, we would do well to remember what the people thought about fasting in Jesus' day. Uh, the rabbis, for example, taught that fasting is an affliction of the soul, a, a morbid sign of, of penitence and humiliation before God. Now realize, Jesus doesn't dismiss fasting. Now, the rest of the New Testament tells us he doesn't, but he radically reorientates it and shifts it to him and focuses it on him. Uh, when he answers these questions, Jesus introduces this idea of a wedding. Weddings, as I'm sure you would agree, aren't a time for fasting and morbid depression. No, it's a time for eating and, and drinking and, and rejoicing. Re rejoicing in whom? Well, Jesus says the bridegroom. And who is the bridegroom? He is. See, the reason why Jesus' disciples don't fast is because they have all they need in him. Yes, when he eventually leaves them through his death and resurrection, yes, then they will fast. But now they have him. And even when they fast, they will fast for him. They will long for the joy that he gives, the satisfaction that he alone provides. It's no, no accident that Jesus uses this image of bridegroom here. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 61.10 and 62 verse 4 to 5 and other passages, God is presented as, as the bridegroom. The bridegroom in whom his people find joy and delight. And now in Jesus, all of that has come about. In Jesus, the God-man, there is now joy to be had between God and man. And here's the implication of what Jesus is doing here. We have a new approach to God. We approach God in new ways. Yes, we must approach God with fear and contrition and humility. But now in Jesus, we can approach Him with joy. Why? Because He's the God who forgives. He's the physician who heals. And because of all of who he is and all of what he has done, he brings a new relationship, a, a newness to our relationship with God. And that's the point of the two parables in verse 21 to 22. The images of new cloth and new wineskins speaks about a new relationship with God. The old ways of joyless fasting before God are inappropriate when you have Christ. For good reason does Luke tell us that the gospel is the good news of great joy. Because in Christ we have joy. We have one in whom we find every spiritual blessing. Dear friends, do you approach God with such joy? Do you approach His Son as the bridegroom in whom you find delight? I like this quote by James Edwards. He says, The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two atom-like parables is not whether disciples will like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. No, the question is whether they will forsake business, business as usual and join the wedding celebration. Dear friends, have you joined the wedding celebration? Have you a seat at that table where you rejoice in Christ as yours? Because you have a new relationship in God through Him. Is Jesus your bridegroom in whom you rejoice in God through? 
Uh, the fourth thing to learn about Jesus here in the next conflict is simply this, that Jesus is the Lord who shows mercy. Jesus is the Lord who shows mercy. Jesus isn't some hard task master who places burdens on our back. No, far from it. He is the one who rules his people with mercy. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 23 to 28. We see that the Pharisees are upset with Jesus again. And this time it's because he's allowed his disciples to eat on the Sabbath, to pluck grain and eat it. And here we see just how strict their legalism had become. Uh, in Leviticus 23:22, we're told that the hungry are allowed to pluck small amounts of grain and eat it in their need. Yet here the Pharisees outlaw God's law by refusing to show mercy. Uh, some of you would have no doubt have heard of the Jewish law that said if someone had fallen into a pit and was covered in rubble and couldn't move if their life wasn't at risk, you weren't allowed to even help him. And it's that kind of merciless legalism that Jesus rejects here. Jesus argues against the Pharisees in two ways. He, he firstly reminds them of David. He reminds them that David, the, the king of Israel, when his men were sick, or not sick, hungry, he allowed them to eat the bread of the presence. And now, now Jesus' reasoning here is quite masterful, and I wish I could spend time on it. But Jesus' argument seems to be this. If the scriptures record that David allowed an unlawful act, and if the scriptures do not condemn David for this unlawful act, and if the scriptures allow David to do so because he's the king, then only one as great as David could allow something similar. Then only someone as great or greater than David could allow something that's seemingly unlawful. And notice David isn't, or Jesus isn't disregarding Scripture. No, he's appealing to it. He's, he's appealing for the right application of Scripture. And he's saying that he's one as great as David. In fact, he's greater. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. But secondly, he also reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was meant to be a delight. Isaiah 58 verse 13 says that we must call it a delight. It's meant to be a blessing, not a burden. And therefore, it's right to show mercy. It's right to be kind and pursue the good of others. As Jesus was doing here. Now, what a comfort it ought to be to us. Whereas the Pharisees lord themselves over others, whereas they dismiss others in their need with pitiless indifference, Jesus is the Lord who shows mercy to those in need. Jesus is a Lord who, who has compassion for those in need. Have you ever felt troubled and weighed down by burden? Have you ever felt like uh, there's too much to carry on? Have you ever felt like you, you, you are drowning under your need? Uh, know this, Jesus knows. Jesus cares. He is the Lord of mercy. Hebrews 4, 6 reminds us that he's the Son of God who is seated on the throne of grace and we can go confidently to him to receive mercy and help in our time of need. We can rejoice and find comfort in the fact that he is the Lord of mercy. In the fifth and final conflict, I want us to see that Jesus is also the Savior who risks himself. 
uh, the Savior who risks himself. In chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, we see another Sabbath day controversy. It's the Sabbath. They're all in the synagogue. And lo and behold, there's a man with a withered hand, and all the eyes are on Jesus. And the question is, what will he do? Will he heal this man? Will he again violate the pharisaical laws? Will he do good and do that which in their eyes is unlawful? Now look at what Jesus does. He doesn't disappoint. He calls the man to himself. And Jesus asks the question, verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? Now the answer to this question is actually quite obvious. Of course it's lawful to do good. It's the Sabbath after all. It's a delight. It's meant to be a benefit, a blessing. Yet by seeking to accuse Jesus, these Pharisees show that they are the ones acting unlawfully. How so? Because they fail to seek that which is good. They, they fail to keep the intention of the Sabbath. They fail to love as the law commands. And what we learn is that Jesus is in fact the one who keeps the law here. Because he shows love to this man with a withered hand, a withered hand which doesn't nearly and isn't nearly as grievous as the withered heart of these Pharisees. But there's more to see here. Not only do we see the, the unbelieving heart of the Pharisees, uh, look again at verse 4. Why does Jesus add this section to save or kill? Now, this man's life isn't at risk, so why does Jesus talking to, why does he talk about saving life or taking life? Well, the answer is this Jesus knows that if he continues, if he continues to challenge these leaders, if he keeps living life, violating their man-made laws, if he points out again and again that he's the Messiah they reject, he knows that they'll seek to take his very life. Uh, that's what Mark tells us, isn't it? The Pharisees who should have sought the good on the Sabbath do the exact opposite because on the Sabbath they go and they plot to kill him. Now, what hypocrisy. Yet Jesus knows this. Jesus knows by healing this man, he knows that the way before him leads to the cross. And, and dear friends, Jesus embraces that path. He embraces that path to the cross because he is the Savior who risks himself. At the cross, he allows his life to be taken from him. At the cross, he allows the plot of evil men to succeed because in and through the cross, he forgives us of our sin. In and through the cross, he, he graciously heals us of our, our leprosy, of our sin, of our uncleanness. Through the cross, he will restore his people to God with new joy. And through the cross and after the cross, he will be exalted on high and he will show mercy in our time of need. See, at the cross, we see that Jesus indeed is the Savior who not just risks himself, but gives himself for sinners like you and me. Did your friends behold Jesus? Behold the Son of God. Behold the Savior of sinners. Behold the King or the Hero who arises in this conflict. One who stands the ground and who gives his life for his people. And so having seen the, the picture we have of Jesus after these conflicts, the real question really remains is how will you and I respond? 
In the five confrontations, we see again and again that Jesus has authority. He has authority to forgive sin. He has authority to eat with sinners. He has authority to change fasting. He has authority to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority to heal and work on the Sabbath. And as the authoritative son of God, the question you have to wrestle with is, how will you relate to him? Now, there are at least four ways you can respond to Jesus from this text. And let me ask you these four questions. Will you oppose Jesus? Will you oppose Jesus? In chapter 3, verse 6, we see that the Pharisees set themselves out to destroy Christ. And in chapter 3, 22 to 30, we see the extent to which they will go. They will accuse him of actually being evil. Instead of seeing that all his works are done by the Spirit of God, they say and accuse him of being possessed by the Spirit of Satan. In fact, they get really close to, to committing the unforgivable sin. You see, after Jesus refutes uh, their claims that he's possessed in chapter 3, 23 to 27, he, he gives them this warning in verse 28 to 30. Look at what it says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they are saying he has an unclean spirit. Now what is this sin against the Spirit? What is this unforgivable sin? Well, it isn't accidentally insulting the Spirit. It isn't accidentally or even intentionally insulting God. It doesn't mean that just because you've done that accidentally, now you've committed this unforgivable sin. No, no, the unforgivable sin is an unrepented love of sin and an unashamed hatred of the work of the Spirit of God in Christ. You see, this sin is a resolute rejection of God wherein one calls good evil and evil good. It is what the Pharisees are doing here. I think Isaiah 55 verse 20 uh, gives us a picture of this sin. It warns us of this sin. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And why is this the unforgivable sin? Well, if you call good evil and evil good, then not only don't you understand the, the evilness of sin, but you don't recognize your need to repent of sin. And by not recognizing your need to repent of sin, you put yourself beyond forgiveness. I, I like the way Sam Storms put it. This sin precludes pardon because by its nature it precludes repentance. Now, know this and be comforted by this. If you recognize your sin and you repent of it, no matter how vile, how blasphemous your sins are, if you recognize and repent, all your sins are forgiven. Because there's forgiveness to those who turn to Christ with faith and repentance. But if you refuse, if you see your sin as good and good as evil, then be warned. Now, I realize not many today will say what the Pharisees said. Not many today will claim that Jesus is possessed by Satan. Yet many, I believe, are on the same path as the Pharisees. Because like the Pharisees, they exalt themselves over Jesus where they will define what is good and evil. Like the Pharisees, many today are a law unto themselves where they disregard Christ and define their own good, their own evil. 
Uh, dear friend, be very, very concerned. Be warned. Exalting self to the degree where you define what is good and what is evil, where you define what is light and darkness, where you define what is sweet and bitter. That kind of thinking, that kind of living leads to the unforgivable sin, the unforgivable sin of unbelief. And so are you one of those who oppose Christ? Now be warned. But perhaps that's not you this evening. But perhaps I need to ask you this question. Will you abuse Jesus? Uh, perhaps you don't oppose Jesus, but you don't want Jesus, to be honest. Uh, if that's you, take heed of chapter 3, verse 7 to 12. There we see that the crowds flock to Jesus, whereas the Pharisees want nothing to do with him. The crowd seemingly can't get enough of him. Yet that doesn't mean their response is any better. No, they want Jesus for Jesus. No, they don't want Jesus for Jesus. They want Jesus for all the other ends. That's the impression we get when we see that the crowds so surround him, they so press in upon him that he has to flee to the boats, otherwise they crush him. See, these crowds only care for Jesus for what they can get out of Jesus. And isn't that the case of many today? So many people have wants and needs, and they rightly perhaps go to Jesus, but as soon as those wants and needs are met, they turn their back on Jesus. That you see this all the time in the church, whether it's a couple who have marital problems and they come to church because they want to know how to live a godly life, yet once their, their problems are settled, they leave. Or whether it's a lonely young adult who comes to church and he wants to find a wife and he gets perhaps one and then after that, he goes. Again and again, you see this, where Jesus isn't the end. He's just the means. And perhaps I need to ask it this way, is Jesus your bridegroom? Is he your joy? Or is he just a waiter you give orders to to get what you want? But, but perhaps that's not even you this evening. Perhaps I need to ask you another question. Will you be ashamed of Jesus? Uh, in, in chapter 3, 20 to 21, and again in verse 31 to 35, we see Jesus' physical family. We see his brothers and mom go to him. They, they pursue him. They call after him. Chapter 3, 21 even says they want to seize him. Why? Because they think he's out of his mind. Now, now think about that for a second. Here are people who, who love him. Here are people who no doubt care greatly for him. He's their son. He's their brother. Yet in their minds, he's gone too far. He's been too radical. And so they want to control him. They want to hold him back. They want to keep him respectable. That's the idea behind that word seize. It means to hold back. And again, is that not what we see so much of today? No, many don't want to oppose Christ. Many actually pursue Christ. They, don't want, uh, they, they want to uh, have him and, and enjoy him. Many dearly love him and claim him as their savior. But, but some of what he says is just too much. He's called to holiness, to, to cut, out your, or cut off your arm and pluck out your eye and avoid sin. That's, that's just too radical. He's called to devotion where you are to love him above everyone and everything else. That's, that's too extreme. He's called to bear witness to him, to, to count the cost to be his disciple. That is actually just too much. See, because he's too radical, 
Too extreme. Many want him as Savior. And as we saw last week, don't want him as Lord. So the result is they love him, but they deny his authority. Now realizing all of these responses, whether you oppose Christ or you use Christ to your own ends or you abuse him or ashamed of him, all of those responses, you're actually against Christ. You don't want Christ for Christ. And so the question really is, will you be for him or against him? And perhaps I need to ask it this way. Will you follow Jesus? In chapter 3, verse 13 to 19, we see that Jesus calls his 12 apostles, and we won't look at their identity. I just want us to see their function. Look at verse 13. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And I suggest to you, if we think principally through those things, at the heart of being a disciple is firstly closeness with Christ. It is where you unite to Him, you're at His feet, you're in a relationship with Him, you desire Him. You unite to Him with, in faith. And not just that, at the heart of being a disciple is, is consecration to Christ, where you obey Him, you go where He says, you do what He says. And not just that, at the heart of being a disciple is conformity to Christ. You, you reflect Him, you align with Him, you stand against evil, against, evil, against sin. You reflect His authority, you reflect His image. But dear, dear friends, where are you tonight? Is there closeness with consecration for and conformity to Christ? Or are you the one in conflict with Christ? Are you for or against the Son of God? Are you following Him or not? Uh, what a wonderful promise is given us in Mark 3.35. Look at what Jesus promises there. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, what is the will of God in this context? It is to follow the Son of God. It is to not oppose him, to not abuse him for your own ends, to not be ashamed of, ashamed of him. No, it's to listen and obey and follow the Son of God whom God loves. And when you do that, when you believe upon him and trust him and obey him and serve him, when you do that, Jesus promises that you are his brother and sister. What a greater delight to be that, to be a brother or sister to Christ. I trust that to be all of us. That we're not be in conflict with Christ, but be in fellowship with Him as family. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your word, and we especially want to thank you for how you reveal your Son to us. I thank you that He indeed is the one who has been clothed with all might and authority in heaven and on earth. Thank you that at the cross he has ascended on high and he reigns, he rules. Yet we pray, dear Lord, that each of us would search our hearts this evening, that we would know whether we are in the truth, whether we walk in the truth, whether we actually know Christ as those who have denied self and followed him. 
And I pray especially, Lord, for those who perhaps do not know you this evening, that they would see their sin, that they would see how much they need forgiveness. And in their own need, they would cry out to Christ even tonight. Oh dear Lord, would you not work in our hearts, and even for those who are believers here this evening that know you, that have heard these truths so many times, would you not equip us to speak more boldly for Christ, to point others to the bridegroom, the one who satisfies. Oh dear Lord, would you not do this in our midst for your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen.